Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2, second book, second chapter. Exodus 2, we'll look at verses 11 to 25 today. I learned a new word recently. I've heard it many times. I've looked it up many times because I couldn't remember what it means. I'm embarrassed to say that even after eight years of formal ministerial training, I still did not know this word, but now I know, if I can use it enough to remember. The word is theodicy. Theodicy. Some of you wordsmiths know that word well, I suspect, but I think probably others of you are like I've been. Maybe sounds familiar, but I couldn't come up with a definition of it. So let me give you some definitions. Two different dictionaries. One says, theodicy is the theological discipline that seeks to explain how the existence of evil in the world can be reconciled with the justice and goodness of God. Or another definition Theodicy is the defense of God's goodness and omnipotence in view of the existence of evil. That's an important word. That's an important matter. Because everywhere we look, we're likely to ask, where is God in this? Why doesn't he do something? I won't even claim that we're going to solve that problem today. We're not even going to address it directly, but indirectly that question is written all over these first two chapters of Exodus. As the Hebrews suffer oppression in Egypt, where is God? So everything we learn about these two chapters ought to help us in our struggle to understand, or to say it another way, hopefully our study this morning will promote a little better theodicy. Let me read the text. Verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, and he watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your, he- your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? But Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to the rescue and watered their flocks. The girls returned to Ruel, their father. He asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. 
During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. What do we do with this story? What should we learn from these details of the life of Moses? Things happened a long time ago, over 3,000 years ago. This little passage we read spanned a lot of years. 80 years are spanned in this passage. So what should we learn? Well, I believe that the Bible tells us what we ought to learn here. It tells us how to interpret this passage, which, by the way, is a basic principle of a biblical study, that Scripture interprets Scripture. And so in regard to this particular narrative from the life of Moses, God has given us three specific scriptures which help us to interpret this passage. The first is this little transitional paragraph right at the end of the chapter, verses 22 to 25. Another is found in Hebrews 11, where the New Testament reflects on this story. And the third is found in Acts 7, where the New Testament, again, in a different way, reflects on this story. These three passages point us to three specific things that I think God clearly wants us to learn from this passage, so let me pass them on to you as best I understand. The first is this, that God is working even in the silence. God is working even in the silence. We've mentioned before the fact that God is hardly mentioned in Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2. He's mentioned only two times in chapter 1 in regard to the midwives who feared, said feared, they feared God. And he's not mentioned at all in chapter 2 until we get down to that little transitional paragraph at the end. As many have pointed out, God is conspicuously absent in these chapters. These chapters are as secular as any ancient writings. Donald Gowan writes, This is a rare piece of literature for the Old Testament. The absence of God here is deliberate. And thus it should be the object of some theological reflection in the light of what is said elsewhere about God's hiddenness. But really, isn't that how it is in life? Doesn't God often seem to hide himself and veil his plans from our view? Don't we often feel in the dark in regard to what God might be doing? or whether he's doing anything? Well, of course we do. And so have God's people down through the ages. But God still works, even in the silence. We know this because in verses 23 to 25, the silence of chapters 1 and 2 is broken. Let me read those verses again, right at the end of the chapter. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groanings, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned for them. Now that's what we expect to hear when we read the Bible, isn't it? Suddenly everything changes. God sees his people's oppression. God hears his people's cry. God suddenly remembers his covenant 
promises. These verses introduce us to the beginning of what will be God's mighty work of deliverance in the chapters to come. He's going to rescue his people by his mighty hand. He's going to deliver them from their slavery. He's going to bring them into the land that he promised their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what made God start paying attention? What made him start to work on his people's behalf? Well, may I suggest that's an inappropriate question. This whole chapter is about God's working, as was the chapter before. Here God is making preparation for all he is about to do. This little transition section is not just an introduction to what God is about to do. It's an explanation of what God has been doing, though in the silence. So what's God doing here? Well, one thing, God is working to prepare Israel's deliverer. If God is going to deliver his people out of, out of Egypt, there's going to have to be some way that he does that, and God is raised up and is preparing a deliverer. For 40 years, Moses was prepared, trained in Egypt. He was trained first in the faith as a little child at his mother's knee, and then he was given the best education that you could find in Egypt, growing up in Pharaoh's household. And then he was given leadership experience as a young adult, as a prince in Egypt. For 40 years, God trained him. And then, as we read in our passage this morning, Moses received another kind of training in the desert for another 40 years. He learned the realities of marriage and family life. He studied in the school of hard knocks, doing the long, lonely work of a shepherd. Though it seems at first glance that God is absent, God was giving Moses 80 years of training for the 40 years of ministry he was to have. Don't get impatient with God. He's not in a hurry with you. God is busy working, even in the silence, preparing his deliverance. Oh, but that's not all he was doing. There's yet another evidence of God's working here. Here we can observe that God is orchestrating events in such a way that Moses' experience foreshadows God's own deliverance of Israel. God is working quietly, painting this picture so that we can see in Moses little hints of what God is about to do. We see it in the parallels of the language used. In verse 11, we read that Moses sees Israel's oppression. He's moved with compassion as he sees Israel's oppression. But it's not just a word used of Moses in verse 11. It's a word that is used of God five times in this book, beginning in verse 25. God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Then in verse 12, we read that Moses strikes the oppressive Egyptian. That's a word that's also used to describe what God did later to the whole of Egypt. We find it used that way of God five more times in the book of Exodus. And then in verse 19, we read that Moses saved or delivered the daughters of Jethro. That's the same word that's used of God, saving or delivering his people. We find it used five more times in the book of Exodus. You see, the point is these literary cues are not coincidental. God painting a picture here. 
Moses' life in, in, in capsule form is, is prefiguring, foreshadowing the great things which God is about to do for his people. Which indicates, you see, that God was working, orchestrating all of this, even though he was silent. In fact, there may be even a greater correlation indicated here, for it seems that in the picture painted in this historical account, Moses really prefigures Christ. Moses learns many varied roles as we go down through this passage of these events in his life. Moses becomes the protector, the rescuer, the provider, the shepherd, the bridegroom, the father, as God prepared him to lead his people. But we have only to read the New Testament to know that God would provide a greater protector, a greater rescuer, a greater provider, a greater shepherd, a greater bridegroom, a greater father. Through all the dark and silent periods of history, in fact, this has remained constant that God was preparing the ultimate deliverer, the perfect savior, the God-man Jesus. For God's always working even in the silence. I fear that we don't believe God works in the silence anymore. We want to make him talk all the time. I hear people say all the time, God told me this, God told me that. Really? God doesn't tell me things like that. I know he speaks in his word, and there we find wisdom for living. He's not speaking to me in the way I hear people say. But you see, I'm not surprised by that. Indeed, I'm not surprised when the events of life don't make sense. Even as I search the scriptures for answers, for I know that God often does his work in silence. He doesn't make everything clear to us. And so this morning I would bring you comfort in your trouble and assurance in your dismay. Though it may seem he has turned a deaf ear, it may seem the heavens are made of brass, God is not deaf, and he is not blind, and he is not unconcerned. He knows his plans for you, and they are good. He has promised it in his word, so rest assured, he is working, even when he's silent. Songwriter, singer Michael Card reflected on this truth in a song he wrote years ago. He said, could it be you make your presence known so often by your absence? Could it be that questions tell us more than answers ever do? Perhaps. Because that's how God works. Silently. Well, but there's more for us to learn from this passage. We know that because God gives us some explanation in the New Testament, which brings us to our second point here. And that is this, God works through blundering faith. God works through blundering faith. Did you ever wish you had great faith? Faith that could move mountains? Faith like those giants of faith mentioned in Hebrews 11? In fact, do, do you ever wish that other people had great faith? Do you ever look around at some other believer and think, Boy, what kind of puny faith is that? Well, this morning, God wants us to know that he even works through our blundering faith. 
Let's consider Moses' faith as it's reflected in this passage. We read Moses' faith in verses 11 to 15. Let me read it again. Listen for Moses' faith here. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, glancing this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. Each one, he asked the one in the wrong, why, do you, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Did you pick up Moses' faith there? Did you recognize it? A little hard to find, isn't it? Verse 11 certainly seems to indicate that he believed something, that he remembered something from his teaching as a little child and understood that he was connected to these Hebrew people and that something inside him changed that he identified with them and what happened to them began to matter to him and so he turned his heart toward them and he tried to do something to right the wrongs that they suffered. But after that first feeble attempt, it seems like everything went downhill with a string of circumstances which have just raged out of control. So Moses have faith in all that? Well, probably, but I think we would have to at least say it was a bumbling faith. This is not the whole story, though. In the New Testament, the Spirit gives us God's inspired commentary on this story. Let me read for you from Hebrews chapter 11, God's comments on this passage. Hebrews 11, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Wow! Now that's faith, isn't it? So which is it? Exodus 2 pictures Moses' faith as a simple concern for his people, leading to a, spring, uh, to a string of unexpected, coincidental, bumbling events. Hebrews 11 sees Moses' faith as a, as a heroic example of following Christ, choosing the disgrace of God's people over the treasures of Egypt. Which is it? You see that those are very different pictures? Well, it's both. It's both. Here we see how God works. God does not choose the noble and powerful who have it all together and do everything right. God chooses the blundering and confused and honors their faltering baby steps of faith. Thus, he accomplishes his great saving work. From the perspective of the person believing God's promises, it may look like an insurmountable leap, a decisive, life-changing step. It probably seemed like that to Moses. 
But to the outside observer, it may look like faltering actions, unfortunate circumstances, even bad luck. Still, God is pleased to work through our bumbling, blundering faith. The biblical scholar Brevard Childs, who writes about these things, makes a really helpful observation. Let me read a quote from him that I think is just great. He says, In a real sense, the issue at stake is the understanding of the nature of man's decision for God. Seen from one perspective, the issue is black and white, unequivocal. In its character, the clear call of discipleship. But in another sense, it is living and deciding among the variety of relations in which we live, seeking in the complexity of mixed sinful emotions and historical accidents to live an obedient life. Faith is seen as a clear-cut decision of commitment and trust, and faith is seen as confused action toward obedience in the complexity of several alternatives. Or as best I can reduce it down to something I can stand, God works through our persistent but bumbling faith. It's not the quality of your faith that matters, it's who your faith is in. Jesus said that even faith as small as a little mustard seed could do great things. At the same time, the fact that you truly believe and commit yourself to the Lord does not mean that there's no longer going to be any confusion or hard decisions in life. It's all going to be confusing and hard. And so this morning I encourage you, who know you have faltering, fumbling faith, keep your faith pointed toward the Lord Jesus Christ seeking to walk in his ways. But don't ever think that it's the quality of your faith that saves you. It's the Lord in whom you put your trust, who sees fit to honor such bumbling faith. And you who think you can judge and disapprove of other people's faith, may I suggest you would have found Moses totally unbelieving. But God saw it differently. And he worked great things through Moses' faltering, bumbling faith. Well, there's one more thing we need to learn from this chapter. I know that's true because Acts 7 gives us another New Testament commentary on this text, which brings us to our third point, and that's this. You must accept God's deliverer. You must accept God's deliverer. You know, every generation has its peculiar traits, including the one in which we live. And one of our traits is that we love our independence. We want lots of options, but we do not want to have to choose to settle, with any, to settle for any one of them. We like to use whatever we want without having to really commit to anything. 
But this morning our text would teach us that we can't follow the ways of our generation forever. We must accept God's deliverer. In the story that we've read in Exodus 2, there are many, many details about the life of Moses. How could we ever pick out which ones really matter the most to us? Well, in Acts chapter 7, the Holy Spirit does some picking for us. There in Acts 7, we have a speech by Stephen, who was one of the early leaders, or leaders of the early church, a speech for which he gets stoned to death, right on the spot, by the way. And that speech focuses our attention on the Hebrews, uh, the Hebrew people's failure to recognize in Moses God's chosen deliverer. Let me just read a little bit of that passage from Hebrews 7, beginning with verse 23. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. But they did not. The next day Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Then the Lord said to him, Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. According to Acts 7, the Hebrews' failure to recognize Moses as God's chosen deliverer is the point of the whole story. So why didn't they recognize him? Put yourself in their position. Your slave being oppressed by the Egyptians. And along comes a man who tries to right the wrongs and, and take on your oppressor. Were there a lot of Egyptian princes who were coming out to rescue the Hebrews from their taskmasters? Really? Who might this possibly have been? What motivation could he possibly have had? They couldn't seem to recognize him. They couldn't see God's hand in this. Interesting because while they couldn't recognize him as their deliverer, the Midianites, who'd never heard of him before, didn't seem to have any trouble. Even though he was an Egyptian, and they would never expect an Egyptian to be their rescuer. Now you see, the problem was not with Moses. The problem was the hard hearts of the Hebrew slaves. They weren't concerned that Moses defended them. That probably was all right. But they were not about to have him settle their disputes. They refused to acknowledge that he had any such authority over them. So they rejected the one who God had chosen to be their deliverer. But you see, there would be no deliverance for them until they turned around from that. For Moses was the one God had appointed, and they must accept God's deliverer. Now Stephen tells that story in Acts 7, not because these people needed instruction in Jewish history, they knew their history quite well, but because they were doing the exact same thing. Jesus had come and shown himself to be a mighty deliverer. 
He had healed the sick and he cast demons out of those oppressed by Satan's power. And he taught as one with God's authority. And his life backed up everything he said. But they rejected him. Oh, the poorest people, the outcast people had no problem recognizing this is God's great deliverer. But the leaders were blinded by their own refusal to have such a one rule over them. They would not acknowledge him to be God's Messiah. And so Stephen tells him about Exodus 2. Here they were claiming to honor Moses, but he said they had rejected Moses. And here they are claiming to honor God, but they just rejected God's appointed son, his appointed deliverer, Jesus. And they're still doing the same thing. And in their anger at hearing such an accusation, they just up and stone Stephen to death for his efforts. Folks in our day, we tend to do the same thing, though. It still goes on all the time. We still tend to reject God's deliverer. The deliverer. The, the historical record of Jesus' life and death and resurrection has been preserved for us better than any book in the history of the world. And that record is not locked up in the old book's vault of some university library. You can buy your own copy in any town in this country, probably in the supermarket. And the whole history of Western civilization is a virtual validation of the impact of this man, Jesus, and his followers on society. So why do people continue to refuse to acknowledge him? Well, for the same reason they refuse to acknowledge Moses. Psalm 2 puts words to the rejection. Let's get free of God. Let's cut loose from this Messiah. But this morning I declare to you, you must accept God's deliverer. To recognize him and accept him and to follow after him is the way of eternal life. But to reject him is to condemn yourself to continue in sin, slavery, and in a hopeless death and in certain judgment. Those are the stakes. You must accept God's deliverer. Not just Moses. The real deliverer. The Lord Jesus. So where's God? Why doesn't he do something? It was undoubtedly the question asked by the ancient Hebrews. Why doesn't he do something? Still the question raised in our day when we see troubles in the world. Why doesn't he do something? Well, here we have just a hint of an answer. God is doing something. Though it may be unnoticed at the moment, God is always working, even in the silence. So don't give up. Don't stop trusting. Don't cave into the despair of the world. But by faith, invest your life and your future in Him. And as you do, be encouraged 
God still works even through your bumbling faith. But don't play games with God. The agnosticism of our day is a sham. People retreating to the supposed safety of, we just can't know for sure. Oh yes, we can know enough to recognize the deliverer whom God has sent. When people said, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus responded, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. God will not be mocked by our quibbling. He demands we accept his deliverer. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we don't even claim to understand all that you're doing in the world. But we would reject the godless notion that is all around us, that there is no meaning, that this all came from nowhere and is headed nowhere. Or this morning we would affirm that you are very much at work, that you are very much in control as you prepare and weave through the events of history for that which you have destined for this world, which we know for those who are in Christ is good, and for those who reject him is disaster. So increase our faith. We admit our faith is so feeble. But may it be directed toward the one who's worthy of it. Forbid, Lord, that we should be so caught up in ourselves and in our world and in our own pride, and in our own self-centeredness, that we would dare to reject the one that you've sent to deliver us. Oh, give us faith to trust him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.